Father, I think it's true that pretty much every guy in this room relates in a unique way to Peter. Peter was, uh, he was a guy. Not, uh, not real religious, not real sophisticated. Just a guy, kind of a man's man. Um, Rough-hewn guy, fisherman. But uh, he had a heart. He had a heart for you. And in the midst of his heart for you, he was constantly getting himself in trouble. He was, uh, he had a tendency to take that foot and put it right smack in his mouth as, as we do. He, uh, at times was, uh, unwise, uh, unthinking, impulsive. He could, uh, he could get lathered up with anger pretty quickly. That's why we relate to him in the scriptures. At, at one point, he made an assertion to you that after you said they would all fall away, he said he would not fall away. He would never deny you. And then you told him exactly what he would do. And, he, and that is exactly what happened. And after he denied you as you said he would, he, he went out and wept bitterly. I, I think most of us in this room have wept bitterly at some time in our life because uh, we see our failures and our sin and our shortcomings. Um, we make our own messes, and we make them so often. But you did not forget Peter, and you did not cast him aside as you do not cast us aside. We, we have all failed. We have all fallen short. All, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are so thankful, Father, that even after we come to know you and we are born again and we start the process of growth and we start taking the baby steps and the faltering steps and fall flat on our face. And then as we go through the years and get some uh, experience and get some maturity under our belt and still will fall short and all of that. There are times we think we can never come back to you because we've disappointed you. We have failed you, perhaps at times denied you. But how thankful we are that you are faithful to us. And that we can never, never, uh, we can never take ourselves out of the Father's hand. Uh, the enemy can't do it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we say, what amazing grace, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? And it's amazing, Lord, that you have not only forgive us, forgiven us, but you sustain us. And we can never exhaust your grace. When we fail, when we fall short, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here we are, guys who love you, yet guys like Peter who fall short often. 
We not only disappoint you, we disappoint ourselves. I think that's why he wept bitterly, that he had failed so miserably. Yet you continued to love him, you continued to care for him. Later, it was Peter who wrote that we should cast all of our care upon you, all of the cares, all of the anxiety, because you care for us. You never stop caring. With that in mind, we come to open your word tonight. We pray that you'll instruct us, that you'll teach us. Every man comes tonight with different issues and different pressures, different uh, things on his radar screen that he is having to deal with. Uh, some of these issues confound us. They confuse us. We're not sure where to go next, so we come to you. We pray that you'll give us tonight precisely what we need. You are the Lord. That's what you do. So tonight we commit ourselves into your care. Make this valuable time for us. By your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're continuing this study in the book of Philippians. We are... Just working our way through this book that is, uh, one sense, a real basic epistle, but in another sense, it's also a very profound epistle because it deals with some, I think, of the most difficult issues and some of the most difficult challenges in the Christian life. We, we've touched on it here and there, haven't really delved into it in great detail, but the whole issue of how do I maintain joy? as I go through life. Uh, another issue would be, uh, what about contentment? Uh, contentment is a huge issue. Uh, the, the American way of achieving contentment is, uh, we, we, we will talk about being uh, stressed out. I'm just stressed out. We get this idea, uh, the more we can eradicate stress, the more we can eliminate stress, the more we can eliminate anxiety, uh, and get rid of that stuff, then we're candidates for contentment. But Paul comes in through another door entirely, and in chapter 4 talks about the fact that he has learned, and I'm so glad he said he had learned, because it's a process, I have learned to be content. You don't get that, you don't get that in two weeks. You don't get that in two years. You don't get it in 20 years. Uh, We'll get to that. Uh, another one that he talks about, and we're going to deal with this tonight, is uh, humility. Humility. Uh, a lady on one occasion came up to C.H. Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the 1800s, and came up to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I want you to know that I haven't sinned in 12 years. Spurgeon said, you must be very proud. She said, I am. <laughs> it went right by her. <laughs> the root of all sin is pride. The opposite of pride is humility. Uh, I was reading someone this week who said in regard to humility, when you think you have humility, you just lost it. Yet in Scripture, humility is a huge issue. 
And it's something that we are to seek and to pray for. It makes us better men. It makes us better leaders in our sphere of influence. Last week we talked about uh, getting a grip on death. Because until you get a grip on death, this is as we were wrapping up Philippians 1, until you get a grip on death, you really can't get a grip on life. And you really can't experience contentment in life until you get a grip on death and get death in proper perspective that we don't have to fear death anymore. Um, this stuff is so counterintuitive. And once again, we don't learn it immediately. We don't learn it in a matter of weeks or months or a few years. This is, this is lifelong learning, lifelong. It, uh, it's going over the basics. Nolan Ryan doesn't pitch anymore, uh, but even into his 40s, as gifted and as great as he was, each year he still went to spring training. You think, did he really need to go to spring training? At, at 40, 41, 42, whatever? Well, he felt that he did because he just kept going back and he kept working on the basics. He kept working on the fundamentals. That's kind of what we're doing here in the study in Philippians. Um, the other thing we looked at last week was getting a grip on suffering. Um, and, and you know, this stuff all ties together. Uh, how can you be content when you're suffering? Paul says, I've learned to be content. Yet Paul had tremendous suffering. Tremendous difficulty in his life. How in the world can you learn contentment in the midst? Not in the absence of suffering. If you got the absence of suffering, you got a pretty good shot at being content. But when you're in the midst of suffering, that's a whole other ball game right there. In Philippians 1.29 last week, just a little review here, Paul talked about two gifts that we've been given, two twin gifts. He said, for to you it has been granted, it has been gifted, not only to believe in Christ, that's a gift, to believe in Christ, to be born again. Not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. I mean, I wish he had said, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to prosper for his sake. But he didn't say that. It's not that God doesn't prosper us and God hasn't been good to us because he's been exceedingly good to us. But it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, you see, that's how we became Christians. That's how we, we became Christ followers. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And when we hear the gospel, we're regenerated, our eyes are opened, and we say, Lord Jesus, I, I ask you to forgive my sin, and we embrace Christ. Uh, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. So we're born. We're born. When uh, your wife is pregnant and for months, all you talk about is the birth, the birth, the birth, the birth. As soon as that baby is born, you don't talk about birth again, except on one day a year. When you, talk, you, when you have the cake and the whole birthday. But birth is, it's, it, the birth has happened. Now what's the issue? Growth. Growth. Uh, that's why we were given twin gifts. For to you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ, that's how I was born, but to suffer for his sake, that's how I grow up. That's how I mature. 
That's just how it is. Um, That's why you have difficulty and adversity in your life, and that's why I have it in my life. This is what matures us. It's what it, it is what grows us. Even as Paul is writing Philippians, he's writing from prison. He is, uh, this is going to be a four-year chapter for him. He's going to be released. He doesn't know he's going to be released. He has a sense that he is in Philippians 1. If it was up to him, and we talked about this last week, he's kind of hard-pressed. Hard-pressed because He thinks he's going to be released, and then he'll have more fruitful ministry with them. But really, in his heart of hearts, he'd like to depart and be with the Lord. Uh, For him to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That's counterintuitive. To die is gain. Yeah, to die is gain. Because in his mind, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's nothing to be feared. Ah, because Jesus beat death. Jesus defeated death. Jesus not only died for our sin, 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the twelve, he appeared to over 500 at one time, and none of them ever recanted. Uh, He beat death. Therefore, because he beat death, we don't have to be slaves to the fear of death We don't fear death. We know the moment we die, the moment we take our last breath, we're in the presence of Christ. So he wasn't afraid of dying. He's in prison in in Rome, writing to the Philippians. He's in prison, doesn't know how long he'll be there. I mean, if it were up to him, he would just depart and be with the Lord. But he has a sense he's going to be released, and he was, and he'll have more years of fruitful ministry. He had a few more years, and then he put, they put him back in prison in Rome, and they took off his head, and he was with the Lord, which he said is far better. Okay. A lot of counterintuitive thinking. You, you don't... Uh, this is contrary to, what, uh, how, to, to how we view life before we come to know Christ. Uh, we, we are fed constantly propaganda. We are, we are fed constantly untruth. We're fed lies. We are fed, fed deception. But this is why we go to the Word of God. Because the Word of God, it's like going to the chiropractor. It, it calibrates you. It gets you set right so you can think clearly about where you are and what it is you're dealing with and what's going on in your life that you wish wasn't there but is there, it's there for a reason. So Paul is sitting in prison in Philippi. Okay? Uh, We've looked at this passage before, but I I think I want to look at it again. We haven't read Philippians yet. I will in a minute. I'd like you, and it's kind of my M.O., it takes me a while to, to get where I'm going, but uh, if you look at 2 Corinthians 11, and see, this all plays in. This stuff all ties together. We're going to talk tonight about getting a grip on humility. Um, how do you do that? Well, don't forget that Paul has suffered. 
He told us we would suffer. It's been granted to us not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. 2 Corinthians 11, he's, he's defending his apostleship to his critics. He normally doesn't do this, but it, the circumstances are such that he feels that he needs to. So he says in 2 Corinthians 11, um, are they Hebrews? So am I. I'm in verse 22. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so. Now watch this. In far more labors and far more imprisonments. Beaten times without number. Let that sink in. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That is unbelievable. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. So I'm sure he had compound fractures from the stones and the boulders hitting, you know, at some point. Um, three times I was shipwrecked. Three times. In our culture, if you're shipwrecked once, you write a book and get an agent and go on a book tour. <laughs> three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from my in rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. I read that to you because... We come in here tonight dealing with different issues. But as I read that list, that list makes me thankful for the mercy of God in my life and for the kindness of God. I come, I don't, I don't come within 100 miles of that. The goodness of God, the kindness of God, it puts perspective into my trials, and it puts perspective into your trials. So Paul is in Rome. As you turn to Philippians uh, 2 tonight, know this. He's getting up in age. He's getting up in years. He's been through all these physical experiences. He doesn't sleep well. You wouldn't sleep well if you'd had 39 lashes. He had that multiple times. Probably had some internal bleeding. Probably had, there was no Advil, there were no antibiotics, there was no, no melatonin to put him to sleep. There was no nothing. Uh, he was, um, he was beat up, he was, um, he was worn out. He was used up. Uh, he had miles on his tires. If you went in a discount tire, they'd tell him he needs a new set, needs some shocks and struts. Uh, the guy's worn out physically, but spiritually, emotionally, he's strong. He's strong. Why do I say that? Because he is responding to a letter they sent to him in a financial gift. He didn't ask for it. They just sent it to him because they loved him. And they were concerned about him because they knew he was in prison, uh, was worn out, beat up, you know, stressed out. They thought, you know, all this stuff. And what does he do? He writes back to encourage them. 
That means he had an inner strength. He had an inner perspective. He had an inner stability that came as a result of what he had been through and how it built his character and how it changed him from a uh, self-centered man to a man of humility. Let's, let's jump into this. Uh, you know, this chapter division, the chapter divisions were not in the original letters. They were added later so we could more easily find our place through these epistles. So when you see chapter 2, just know it wasn't there originally. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, and just stop right there. Whenever you see a therefore, you should stop and see what it's there for. A therefore is a summary statement. So the things we had talked about earlier tonight by way of review, uh, verse 28, you know, don't be alarmed by your opponents. Verse 29, for you it's been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So they're in conflict as he's in conflict, okay? So he says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and the way this is structured grammatically in Greek, it's not, if there is, and I hope there is, it's not, that's not it. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is. If there is any consolation of love, and there is. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is. If any affection and compassion, and there is, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Did you see that? Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, unified in spirit, intent on one purpose. Um, what, what Paul is doing here, they wrote to encourage him. He's writing back to encourage them. Now, to me, we're going to get to this in a minute. Um, the, the overriding theme, uh, to me, of these first 11 verses in chapter 2 is, uh, is getting a grip on humility. It's so counter to how we are normally as men. Why would he say, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ? They needed to be encouraged. Sometimes when you're dealing with your stuff, sometimes when you're dealing with your adversity, it's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Acts uh, 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You have more than one tribulation. You have one, more than one thing in your life you wish that it wasn't there. They, they, they come in waves. They come in clusters. Um, what happens is, as those are in our lives, they begin to take a toll on us. They begin to weigh on us. They begin to sap our energy. The, the, we, we would like energy to focus on things where we could be productive. But, but the greater the affliction, the greater the emotional energy the greater the emotional energy that must be spent that could be spent on doing something that would you think would be productive and you could make some strides, but you're worn out. You ever feel that way? And so when you get worn out, you get discouraged. What he is saying to them is, yeah, I know you guys are going through some stuff. They were in Philippi. Philippi was not the Bible Belt. It was a Roman colony. They were believers. They were in the minority. They were outnumbered. It was not easy. The New Testament, throughout the New Testament, you've got all kinds of persecution. 
They were living in the midst of persecution. When Paul founded the church in Philippi, within hours, he was in jail. Just how it worked. What he's doing here is when, when these trials, when these sufferings, uh, these conflicts, which he referred to in the previous verse, you're experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, they'll wear you down. And when you get worn down, you lose perspective and you get discouraged. He wants them, what he's trying to do is, he's having them take a step back. We get so close to the trouble. We get so close to the adversity. It's, 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 we're dealing with it every day. You get up in the morning and it's there. It just, it just saps you. It drains you. Okay. He's having them take a step back. And he's reminding them, <laughs> he's reminding them of what has happened to them. They are not who they used to be because they have been bought by the blood of Christ. They belong to Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, that describes what happens to people who come to know Christ. You look back over what's happened. When you look back over how you came to Christ, it doesn't matter where you are right now. If you just look back through the events, over the events that surrounded your coming to Christ, and you think on that for a little bit, you know what's going to happen to you? It's going to encourage you. Because you're not who you used to be. God intervened in your life, and he did a work in your life, and he put you on a new path. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. You're a new creature. You're not, you're not who you used to be. He, he is, he is, what he's attempting to do is to remind them of what is true. Is there any encouragement? Yeah, you belong to Christ. You're not in this by yourself. Uh, is there any consolation of love? Yeah, absolutely there is. Because nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not your failures, not your stresses, not your hardships, not I missed up here, I should Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's Romans chapter 8. Nothing. There's a whole list. Well, I think that could separate. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. It cannot be done. You see? So guys are saying amen. Why are you saying amen? Because you're encouraged. That's encouraging to me. Is it not encouraging to you? Absolutely it is. You see, when we're right up against it, we forget that. Take a step back. Look at the love of God. It'll never go away. It'll never cease. It'll never stop. Uh, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, when you come to know Christ, you're given the Holy Spirit. He'll never leave. He's the comforter. He's always there. He's always with you. In, in fact, when you don't know how to pray, Romans 8, we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself prays for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit of God is praying for you. By the way, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he lives forever to make intercession for the saints. So the Holy Spirit is praying for me. When I'm confused and I don't even know how to pray about a situation, he's praying for me. Not only is he praying for me, Jesus is praying for me. That's unbelievable. John just said, that's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. I bought some coffee today, and this 19-year-old girl, I had exact change. She said, that's awesome. <laughs> that's not awesome. This is awesome.
If there's any affection and compassion, and there is, he died for me. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Therefore, I shall call on him as, as long as I live. Psalm 139, he understands my heart. He understands my thought from afar. He gets me. He understands me. He's compassionate towards me. When we get discouraged, you got to have some fallback verses. Let me give you two of them that I fall back on all the time. Because we're going through life, and, and, and you know, I'm not sure I said this, but what I see, in, what I see here, and I'm going to give you some verses in a minute. Here's what I see in Philippians 2, down 1 through, down through about 11. It's, it's getting a grip on humility, but there are also some other ingredients here um, that, that are all woven together. This may not make much sense to you, but in my twisted thinking, my mother dropped me when I was a child. It makes sense to me. Uh, let me tell you what I see in verses 1 and 2. I, I, I see that because we're suffering, there's the necessity. Here's the first. If I, give me an outline. Here's the first point on the outline. When you know Christ and you're walking with Christ, you have to constantly fight off discouragement and division. Constantly. You've got to fight off discouragement. And we also have to fight off division. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, as we're fighting, dealing with our stresses and all this stuff, uh, we get discouraged. You pull in the Jiffy Lube, and you get that, I mean, you know, you pull your car in, they put it on the rack, you're in the waiting room drinking that coffee that is awesome. <laughs> you, uh, they pull the drain plug, and all that oil comes out. That's what happens to us. Sometimes we get overwhelmed and we lose our courage. The drain plug is pulled on our courage. To encourage is to put the plug back in and pour in courage. Okay. Um, two fallback verses that help me. Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, um, 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob and you remnant of Israel. Watch this. You who have been born by me from birth and carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. Even to your grain years, I will bear you. I have carried you. I have borne you, I will carry you, and I will bear you. I go to that verse all the time in my head. Um, no matter where you are in life, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We tend to try to store up grace. 
You don't have to store it up. Because this is my next fallback verse, is Lamentations 3. If you can find Jeremiah, Lamentations is to the right of Jeremiah. If you're in Daniel, go left. If you're in Genesis, go right. It's hard to find some of these books, isn't it? I mean, Lamentations, here's a guy in, in utter depression. He's worn out. He's lost his nation. They've been taken off in the captivity. He, he says, Jeremiah says in Lamentations 1, uh, verse 12, he says, look and see if there is any pain like my pain. That's quite a statement. Uh, 16 of of Lamentations 1. For these things I weep, my eyes run down with water. Um, it, it, it's a tragedy what, is, what has occurred. Um, and the Lord has done it. He's brought judgment. Uh, he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, the law is no more. Also her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Uh, it's a time of judgment. He says in 11, my eyes fail. I'm in 2.11. My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth. Uh, look at 3.17. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished. He didn't have any strength. He didn't have any courage. He's worn out. This guy's shot. He's used up. He's stressed out. He's beat up. He's fatigued. He's defeated. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness, so I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Go down a few verses to verse 21. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. So see, he's got to kick in now with right thinking. Got all this depression, all this loss, all this fatigue, all this adversity. He's worn out, he's shot, he is spent. But he starts thinking straight. This I recall to my mind, that's a discipline, therefore I have hope. Well, what are you recalling to your mind? Look at the next verse. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. It can be translated, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. That's a fallback for me. That's all time. <laughs> is it not? You in a tough spot? How are you going to get out of it? Oh, I don't know. Well, look at 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Are you not sure what to do? Is it unclear? Ah, that's fine. You keep doing what you know you should do, and in what you're not sure about, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. Lord, would you just sort this out? Would you sort it out for me? I'm doing what I know you've called me to do, this I'm unclear about. He knows that. See, this is how you get encouragement in the midst of adversity. If there is any encouragement, 
And there is. And there is. But you can't watch Fox News all day. <laughs> you can't listen to talk radio all day. Flipping the stations. Oh my gosh, did you hear? Did you? Oh my, oh, this is, I can't believe that. Believe it, it happened. And it's going to keep happening. <laughs> no wonder we're exhausted. No wonder we're shot. No wonder we're fatigued. Uh, let's get back to Philippians. Uh, it's, uh, the first two verses to me are, are fighting off discouragement and division. You say division? Yeah, look at verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Uh, they've been redeemed. The people at Philippi, they've been redeemed. They're in a body. They're believers. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, they can't get divided. See, the problem is, the problem is, all these other Christians around you, they're all screwed up. Are they not? And see, they think you're screwed up. And it's true. I'm screwed up, you're screwed up. We've come to know Christ, but we all got our issues. We all got our stuff. We all got our blind spots. We all have our brokenness. We all have our flaws. And see what the enemy loves to do is get in between us and get divisions. He wants that in your family. He wants that in your home. He wants it. Uh, years ago when I wrote Point Man, I said the enemy, for every guy, every man, every husband, uh, you should know this. The enemy has a twofold strategy. He wants to alienate and eventually divide the relationship you enjoy with your wife. He wants to divide and conquer. Secondly, he wants to alienate and 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 uh, what, what, what word did I? He wants to alienate and um, end the relationship you have with your wife. He wants to alienate and end the relationship that you have with your kids. He wants division. Uh, uh, he, and he knows they're fighting off division. Every church is fighting off division. Uh, if, you, if you turn over to uh, Philippians 4, verse 2, he says, I urge you, uh, Euodia, and I urge Syntyche, two women. Some have called uh, I urge uh, odious and soon touchy. <laughs> to, watch this. To live in harmony in the Lord. Why? Because they had some stuff between them. And it was starting to affect everybody. Uh, th this is not easy stuff, but we have to be on guard against the division. Uh, uh, in Romans, Paul says, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. That includes your home. So we, we've got to be quick when we got splits, when we got issues, we got to be quick to mend them, to reconcile them, to fix them, to talk them through. And don't wait for someone else to initiate, you initiate. We got a problem here. We got to talk this through. We're getting divided and we can't be divided. You see? Um, this isn't easy stuff, but it's stuff we have to be on the alert for. Gordon MacDonald, years ago, uh, I read an article by him and uh, McDonald was making observations after years of being a pastor. He said, you know, it seems to me, and he was talking to pastors, that there are four kinds of people in our churches. Uh, number one, you have your VIPs. Your VIPs are your very important people. As a pastor, your VIPs are your leaders. Uh, th those that you, you lead the church with and those you work with and you need to be in the, in the same boat, rowing in the same direction. So you obviously spend time with your leaders. You see? 
Those are your VIPs. Secondly, in the church, you have your VTPs. Your VTPs are your very teachable people. The VTPs are the younger ones who are teachable that one day, you see, they're your next generation of leaders. So you want to spend time with them. It'd be 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things you've heard and seen in me and trust the faithful men who will in turn entrust them faithful men, teachable men. You see, so you have your teachable teachable people, your teachable men, spend time with them. Why? Because you'll disciple them, and they'll become your next generation of leaders. You see? That makes sense. He said, then you have, uh, you have your VNPs, which are your very nice people. Churches are full of very nice people. They're just nice. They're nice. They don't rock the boat. They're loyal. They're, they're there. They're steady. Thank God for very nice people. But you can spend a lot of time with them, and all that's ever going to happen is they're going to be nice. You see? So thank God for them, encourage them, bless them, but keep moving. To the VIPs and the VTPs. The fourth category, he said, is that you have your VDPs. Your VDPs are your very draining people. The very draining people you could spend 100 hours a week with every week for 10 years, and they'd be angry with you for ignoring them. They're just draining. They're parasites. They will suck you dry. They will suck the life out of you, and they'll turn on you. Don't spend your time with VDPs. Now, in your sphere of influence, there's probably one or two VDPs. How do you handle people like that? Uh, I try to avoid them, quite frankly. I just avoid them. I don't hang around them. I don't spend a lot of time with them. Number one, they're not teachable. Um, I acknowledge them, but I don't have time. Uh, there are VIPs, there are VTPs. That's what I'm called to do. That's what you're called to do. You see? Uh, sometimes in families, uh, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes people are contentious. Sometimes people are difficult. Now, now we all have our issues. Some of you guys are married to contentious women. In Proverbs, you, it talks about the contentious woman. She's like, it's like living with a dripping faucet. No, that's not every wife. But some are more, um, and some don't even know the Lord. That's not easy. That's difficult. Uh, some women are married to a Nabal. N-A-B-L. You remember N-A-B-A-L. You remember Nabal? Uh, David had protected Nabal's sheep and his herds and helped his men, you know, from enemies and all that. And David asked at a certain point for provisions, and Nabal said, who's David? I'm not giving him anything. And David got upset and said, I'm going to go take that sucker on. And uh, Nabal was married to this godly woman named Abigail, and she heard that Dave was coming, and she got the camels and the provisions and the dehydrated food and the whole thing, and showed up and said, please forgive, I'm, you know, I'm married to Nabal, a foolish and worthless man. Some women are married to foolish and worthless men. Make sure you're not one of them. Make sure you're not difficult. That's all I can tell you. Make sure you're not a VDP, a very draining person. 
Let's keep moving. You guys still with me? Have I talked about humility, humility yet? <laughs> Not yet. But I'm, I'm at verse 3 now, so we're going to talk about it. Uh, in, in verses 3 and 4, here's, here's my second point uh, on 3 and 4. We have to learn to fight off selfish ambition. If, if there's going to be, um, if we're going to be of the same mind in verse 2 and maintaining the same love and united in spirit and 1001 purpose, then you can't have a bunch of people running around full of selfish ambition. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness, or some translations say selfish ambition, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, there you go, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Uh, that word translated selfishness or selfish ambition, uh, Cleon Rogers, uh, who has done a lot of background uh, on the New Testament original language, he says this about the word that we would translate there, selfishness or selfish ambition. He says, uh, the word originally was, rela was related to a noun which originally meant a day laborer and was used especially of those cutting and binding wheat or those who were spinners or weavers. The word later. And, you know, words kind of develop as the years go by. Jesus said, suffer the little children to come under me. Well, we don't use that term anymore. What does that mean? Allow the children to come under me. So words, you know, through the years, their meanings can change. He's tracing this for us. The word later denotes the attitude of, a, of those who work for wages, Particularly, it denoted a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. That selfish ambition. It then came to be used of party squabbles, of the jockeying for position, and the intrigue behind place and power. Trying to get a place, trying to get power. Uh, finally, it meant selfish ambition, just full orb selfish ambition, the ambition which has no conception of service, but only aimed at profit and power. That's selfish ambition. That, that destroys families, it destroys churches, it destroys institutions. Um, look with me, if you would, at James chapter 3. I mean, this is serious stuff, this kind of selfishness. This kind of, and again, in our culture, I believe our, our, our most popular idol, our most popular God is self. You see, self-fulfillment, self-realization, self-actualization, self-understanding. Man, I, I, looking out for number one. Uh, James 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom of selfish ambition. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly. It's natural. It is demonic. Why is it demonic? Well, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. The, 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 the all-time model of selfish ambition is Satan, who was the highest, Lucifer, who was the highest of the created angels in uh, uh, Ezekiel uh, 28 and Isaiah 14. But you see, in his heart, he, he determined he was going to be as God. He wanted to replace God. He wanted to depose God. He led a rebellion of a third of the angels in an attempt to become God. He said, I will ascend to the highest. He wanted to be God. 
He was jockeying for position and prestige and power. And this is something that we have to fight off. This is the antithesis of humility. It, it's, it's uh, I remember Bill Lawrence calling this the need to lead. Uh, it's the need to be in the limelight. It, it's, it's the need to be appreciated. It's the need to be honored. It's the need to be acknowledged. And it is a cancer. It is a, uh, it's a draino. You got little babies, little toddlers, you put locks on the drawers, on the cabinets. Because you got Drano or something like it under the sink and you don't want a little kid sipping that because that's a corrosive that'll rip them up. That's what selfish ambition is. So go back to Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. Conceit is always empty. Because whatever it is you, you're proud of, uh, I read about Oscar Wilde. Uh, Oscar Wilde was going through customs and they asked him if he any, had anything to declare. And he says, oh, the only thing I have to declare is my genius. <laughs> and he was a genius. Yeah, but where did you get your genius? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And what have you received that you have not been given? And later in his life, he came to acknowledge that. I've been given great gifts and I've squandered them my whole life. Conceit is always empty. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests. It doesn't say don't look out for your own interests. It says don't just merely look out for your own interests, but look out also for the interests of others. So there is a book that is... Uh, as popular today as it was when it was written in 2005 called Good to Great. And if you've never read Good to Great, it's one of the best business books I've ever, ever read. I've read it a number of times. Uh, so what is Good to Great? Well, the, the, there was a study that was done by Jim Collins, and basically he's asking the question, are there companies that defy gravity and convert long-term mediocrity or worse into long-term superiority? And if so, if there are such companies, they go from good to great, what are the universal distinguishing characteristics that cause a company to go from good to great? So, you know, he had his research team and they, you know, they're trying to figure this out. And um, over five years, the team analyzed the histories of all 28 companies in the study. And after sifting through all this material, they found these companies that went from good to great and they had certain traits there, it's really fascinating to me the traits they came up with. But the first one they came up with was called Level 5 Leadership. And here's what Colin says about Level 5 Leadership. He says, we were surprised, shocked, really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders seem to have come from Mars. They're self-effacing, they're quiet, reserved, even shy. These leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. They are more like Lincoln than Patton. And then 
he makes some other key points at the end. He's summarizing the chapter. Every good to great company had level five leadership during the pivotal transition years. And in an interview I read with him, he said, yeah, level five leaders, uh, their top characteristic is humility. Humility. Level five refers to a five-level hierarchy of executive capabilities with level five at the top. Level five leaders embody a paradoxical mix of personal humility and professional will. They are ambitious, to be sure, but ambitious first and foremost for the company, not themselves. Not selfish ambition. They're looking out for the interest of others. Not just themselves, but others. Level five leaders set up their successors for even greater success in the next generation where egocentric level four leaders often set up their successors for failure. Huh. Level five leaders display a compelling modesty or self-effacing and understated. In contrast, two-thirds of the comparison companies had leaders with gargantuan personal egos that contributed to the demise or continued mediocrity of the company. Level five leaders display a workmanlike diligence. They are more the plow horse than the show horse. I love that. Level five leaders look out the window to attribute success to factors other than themselves. When things go poorly, however, they look in the mirror and blame themselves, taking full responsibility. The comparison CEOs often did just the opposite. They looked in the mirror to take credit for success, but out the window to assign blame for disappointing results. I find it interesting, and, and, and he goes on throughout the book, and he, and he keeps saying, I'm shocked by this. I'm just shocked. I'm shocked. But see, he's talking about a character attribute here. And you find this character attribute, first of all, you find it, uh, flip over with me to Luke 22, if you would. Um. In Luke 22, they're preparing for Passover. Jesus is passing the cup and the bread, and he's telling them that he's going to be betrayed. Um, that's 22, 22, 23. They begin to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. 24. Jesus just said he was going to be betrayed. It's going to be Judas. And there arose also a great dispute among them as to which of them was to be regarded to be greatest. In the midst of Jesus and what he's going to face, they start arguing about who's the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. This is called servant leadership. The ultimate example of servant leadership is Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. So, let's go back. Because you see, we've got to fight off selfish ambition. That's number two. But number three is that I also have to fight to keep Christ in focus. The only way I'm going to attain any kind of humility and fight off selfish ambition is to keep Jesus in focus. Notice, if you would, uh, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, 
does not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, Jesus is completely and fully God. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that star hung over the manger, that baby created the star that hung over the manger. He's God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Fully and completely God. All, all things are by him, for him, and through him. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Through, through Christ, the worlds were made. He is completely, totally God at one with the Father and the Spirit. Okay? So, although he existed in the form of God, do not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. Okay? He had privileges as God. But note this, seven, but he emptied himself. He laid aside his privileges, he, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Astonishing. Being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, there's your gospel. This is what Jesus did. He was God fully and completely. He became the God-man. It's asserted throughout the New Testament. Fully God, fully human. Why did he go to the cross? Uh, when he showed up and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the Lamb of God. All those lambs in the Old Testament, the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of lambs that were slain in the Old Testament, they all pointed to Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He died in our place. The wrath that should have come upon us was put on Christ. That's what you call humility. You know what this is all about? He did not what was best for him. He did what was best for us. And it says to me, and it says to you, have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. I have to keep looking at Christ in order to have any semblance of humility in my life. Because of what Jesus did, verse 9, for this reason God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God. And what this is telling me, see, earlier he said if there's any encouragement, look back, you know, you're in the family of God. Why? Because you look to the past and you see what God's done in your life. What he's saying here is look to the future because something's going to happen that hasn't happened yet. What, what, what is going to happen? God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. It's yet to happen. But this is a proof of who he is. Flip over real quick to Isaiah 45 because in Isaiah 45 you see the sovereignty of Jesus he is fully and completely God because you have a reference to Jesus in Isaiah 45. You have this reference actually in verses 5 and 6. I am the Lord, there is no other. Beside me there is no God. Note also verses 18 to 22 of Isaiah 45. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, that's Jesus, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is no one else. 
Note, if you would, uh, verse 23, actually 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. I'm in 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is yet to happen. But it's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back. And this difficulty and this adversity and this heartache and all this stuff we're dealing with. See, this is why Paul said, uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If, if you die before Jesus is coming back, you're immediately in the presence of Christ. But if you're alive when he comes back, This is unbelievable. And he's coming back. So, you see, if there is any encouragement, and there is, is there not? This is temporary. Paul, you know what Paul calls the stuff we're dealing with? He calls it momentary light affliction. You know why it's momentary? Because when you put it up to eternity, it's a moment. Uh, and it's light. You say it's light? Yeah, because eye has not seen. Ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Let's pray. So, Father... Thank you that the Lord Jesus has us covered past, present, and future. And whatever we have comes from him. Would you help us, Lord, in our leadership responsibilities to emulate Christ? Help us to uh, care for those under our care. Help us to look out for them. Yes, we have, we have things in our lives, but that cannot be our primary focus. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Jesus modeled that. This is the path, this is the road to maturity. Encourage us, Lord. Do not let us become weary in well-doing. Do these, these tribulations are for a season and for a purpose. Don't let us become weary as we follow you. There's a reward coming. It's unimaginable what you're going to do for us. And in the interim, you'll sustain us. We move out of here tonight with confidence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, feel free to take off if you need to. If you want to stick around and ask Steve a few questions, Lawrence oh, yeah. and I will be here with some mics if you want to ask away. Let's keep it in line with what we talked about tonight. That'd be great. You need to split, split. Hey, John, good to see you. And then we've got... 
Lawrence, right here. So, you guys, uh, once again, the question-answer thing works really, really well when someone asks a question. Yeah, any questions? Otherwise, it's flat. We got up. a hand up right here, Jay. Hey, Jay, right there, orange shirt. Is it? Is it you? Yeah, right behind you. You got a mic, Jay Madden, right behind you. There, there you go. All right. So, um, so my question is. Uh, we talked about uh, selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Yeah. Selfish ambition. Yeah. And um, I was wondering if you could give me an example of a time where you found yourself in selfish ambition and, and me? how. Me? Am I alone here? I, I personally, I've never dealt with this. But I, I've seen it in the lives of many other people. I must be in the wrong Bible study then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in absolute denial, man. And, um, and so wow. if you could just uh, you know, yeah. give me an example and how God yeah, led you Yeah, I sure to... can. Uh, I think just as there's a corporate ladder, there's a ministerial ladder. And as a young guy out of seminary, I was full of selfish ambition and I didn't know it. Absolute, I mean, I was drunk on it. Didn't know it, didn't realize it, but I was. Uh, I really was. I mean, it went deep, and I pastored in Northern... I'm going to tell you something. I've never said... I, I'm not even sure I'm going to say it now. <laughs> I was a young rookie pastor uh, in Northern California, and a guy named Chuck Swindoll was pastoring in Fullerton. And uh, I listened to Chuck. Anything Chuck wrote, I read. I mean, and in my heart of hearts, I wanted to be the Chuck Swindoll of Northern California at 27 years old. Now, that's what you call stupid. <laughs> but I did. I had no idea what I was talking about. You, you know, I, I think a part of it, I wanted to be effective because I saw that in Chuck's life, and I, I, th I thought that was wonderful. But uh, I think also, in all honesty, I wanted to have a big church, a real big church, and I had about 50-some people coming. Uh, I, 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 had, I wanted to be known. I wanted to be appreciated, I wanted to be in the limelight. It was all selfish ambition. I didn't have a clue the price that is paid to be used like that. And there is a price. You see, I was young and I was foolish. So as I've said before, God enrolled me in some courses in the school of disappointment. And uh, he dealt with that. I, I, I was, uh, when I was young, a young pastor, I was absolutely driven. I was going to climb that ladder. I'd never say it. I had enough brains not to ever talk like this. But man, I was always working the angles. You see? Had the resume out there. You know, staying in touch, had my network, all that stuff. I didn't realize that promotion comes not from me, Promotion comes not from the east or from the west or from the desert. Promotion comes from God. 
He puts up one and he sets down another. And he set me down on my butt and broke me. Uh, I, had, I was always getting ahead of the Lord. You know the Lord is my shepherd? You follow the shepherd? I'm out in front. Come on, Lord. We're going this way. It was ludicrous. He set me down. So I won't go any more to that, but it, he had to make me afraid of myself. He had to make me afraid of trying to advance and be promoted. And the church I was in, we had some success. And then, long story short, he, through my own, I was worn out. I felt like I'd done all I could. I resigned, not knowing where I was going. I figured someone else would pick me up right away. A bigger church, more prominent. Interviewed at seven churches, they all turned me down. I wound up in a little tiny church just a few miles up the road full of old people. And I knew I'd never make it grow, and I never did. But that's where I started to learn some lessons. And I determined, and I realized while I was there, I'd brought this on myself, and I was full of selfish ambition. And I took a course at Dallas Seminary. I came down, and Bill Lawrence was teaching on selfish ambition, the need to lead. And I thought, that's me. So, so I determined that little church that I was unhappy in, I would never do a thing to leave it. I wouldn't put out a resume. I wouldn't make call. I would, I'm here, Lord. I'm, if I'm here the rest of my life, I'm here. And, uh, I, I was, and then God worked providentially through some circumstances, and I resisted for a year because I was so afraid of myself. But then it became real clear that we were supposed to go to the next place. So there's my answer. Yeah. There's a right kind of ambition. Paul says, we make it our ambition, whether in the body or out of the body, to please the Lord. Ambition is like mushrooms. There's a kind of mushroom that'll kill you. You'll die a painful death. But you get the right kind of mushrooms. They're great. Same thing with ambition. We want Christ to be glorified. We want Jesus to be honored. I must decrease. He must increase. Thanks for the question. Jay. Yeah. Right here. Okay, I got my first copy of Spiritual Depression this week. Oh, by Lloyd-Jones. Read, read the first chapter. Yeah. And he talks about the types of folks that tend to be depressed, that deal with depression. And the first thing he talked about was people who are introverts versus extroverts. People who are more reflective. Yeah tend to have problems, yeah. and you mentioned several people. Yeah. But as a Christian, we're to be reflective. I mean, that's, sure. we really look at ourselves. Yeah. And yeah. So how do, we, how do we reconcile that? Yeah, he'll go on in the book and talk about it. He'll talk about guys like Henry Martin, who was a, a Puritan pastor, but a very introspective guy, got so introspective, he got all locked up inside, got very tight, forgot the grace of God. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, one of the things he talks about, he was a medical doctor, he talks about temperament. You know, when you come to Christ, you're redeemed of your sin, but you keep your temperament. Peter was the same, had the same temperament before he knew Christ as after he knew Christ. Peter was always the first guy over the wall, you know. P Peter was volunteering without realizing what he was volunteering for, you see. So we have these different temperaments. But he said, regardless of your temperament, if you're more melancholy, if you're more introspective, 
when Christ comes into our life, we still have the same temperament, but we are not to be dominated by our temperaments. We are to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And he mellows us, and he teaches us. And so that's why in spiritual depression, he, he was, the way that book was written, it was the sermons that he preached, but he was shaving one morning, and the outline came to him, the way that Satan depresses Christians with different temperaments. You see? Some, it's fear of the future. Not everyone has fear of the future because they're very confident. So if he can't get you with fear of the future, he will get you with vain regrets from your past. You see? Or some people uh, are, are, are very emotional and visceral. So he has a chapter just on feelings. You can't live off your feelings. And it's all so biblical. So there's balance. You keep reading. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Yeah. Somebody else? We have good questions. Some of you are depressed just by being here tonight. <laughs> we, got, oh, we got one more back there? Yes, sir. If, <clears throat> if God puts people in the position of authority and in government and... It seems to be, or to me, that they're not necessarily there to serve, but more to serve their self. You think? <laughs> well, then my question is, why would God put them in that office as he, as he says he does? Yeah, well, he says he does. I raise up kings, I set them down. Daniel 2, Isaiah 40. He raises up one, he sets down another, he blows on them and they wither. Uh, he puts them in, no doubt about it. Um, they serve his purposes. Why does he do it? Isaiah 55, 8. My ways are not your ways. But I put them in? Are you kidding me? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heaven or above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. God works sovereignly. God works strangely. We'll never figure him out. God is knowable, but he's incomprehensible. So, it, 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 we don't have the bandwidth to understand why. Except all of those in power, and historically there's been many of them. Many of them are Antichrist. 1 John 2, there will be a coming Antichrist. 1 John 2 says many Antichrists have gone out into the world. There's always been Antichrist around. The, 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 the characteristic of the, man of, of, of the Antichrist who will come... He's a man of lawlessness. We got that everywhere right now. You see, they're above the law. Uh, anyway. But every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus. So in the interim, we have to trust God. He uses them for his purposes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In England, when the Puritans in the, in the 1600s I was reading this again this morning in the 1600s uh, when you had John Owen and Thomas Watson and some of those great pastors. Um, a guy named uh, Laud, L-A-U-D, was put into power. And he brought about great persecution. Uh, all the, um, the Bible-believing pastors were put out of their churches and they couldn't go within five miles of their church. They lost their income. Many of them were impoverished, went to prison. Um, under Laud, 
uh, you had great persecutions. You had martyrdoms. You see, God raised him up, and then he was, and then he died. But because of the Puritans knew such persecution, it drove them to the scriptures. And it's fascinating to me that there's a resurgence of Puritan writings, and I see all these young pastors across America diving in to the Puritans. Because I think it's what the young pastors are going to face in their lifetime. One more quick question right here. Hey, Steve. Hi, Dean. You've often talked about uh, seasons of our life, uh, season of sowing, season of reaping, and the season of waiting. Yeah. Um, Many of us who are kind of the type A individuals find ourselves sometimes in that season of wait, which we don't like to wait. Yeah. With in regard to, with the differences of self-ambition we've talked about and humility tonight, I know you faced it, I faced it, the season of wait. Any reflections or perspectives you can share with us when we're in that spot? Yeah. Um, w- yeah. When, when you're in a season of waiting, you cannot shut your Bible. You have to open your Bible. Because in Psalm 130, uh, he's in the depths. He says, out of the depths, I've cried to you, O Lord. He's under tremendous. When you're in the depths, you're in incredible darkness. You're in incredible pressure. And all you want to do is get out. But one of the things he says as you work through Psalm 130, uh, he talks about the fact, he, he says, in his word do I hope. While you're waiting, you open your Bible. And see, the longer you wait, the more you lose hope. Oh, this is never going to end. This is never going to change. Well, actually, you're closer to the resolution and to the deliverance than you are than when you started. But you're just, it's like Philippians. You're just out of gas. You're just worn up. You're beat up. You're stressed out. You see? So uh, you keep your Bible open and you keep reading the scriptures. You keep reading Lamentations 3. You keep reading Isaiah 46 3. You keep reading Isaiah 64 4. Um, uh, no eye has seen a God like thee who works. For those who wait for him. While you're waiting on God. And to wait on God doesn't mean you're passive in an area of your life. You go about what you can do. What you can legitimately do. The work, your responsibilities. You do that work. But you're waiting for a deliverance that you can't pull off. Okay. You do your work. But while you're waiting for God to deliver. See, remember this. No eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. What he's doing is he's lining it up. Obadiah Sedgwick said, uh, God will take time, but he will not waste time. Hmm. I love that. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, he will exalt you. God's all about timing. And we don't have a clue. (laughs) Waiting's hard. And speaking of time, that's it. We're out. Steve, thanks. Thanks, guys. Lord bless you. That was awesome.